The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Last week we dealt with probably one of the most difficult texts uh, in the whole Bible. And we looked at the last eight verses of Daniel 9. And a part of what we did last week also was we recorded a little a podcast to talk broadly about eschatology. And I, it's pretty cool to see how much traction that's gotten uh, between a Philippi and Heritage like We've had over 400 people view our YouTube channel, our YouTube video, people from Heritage, and then Philippi's had over 300. It's just cool to see the people of God wanting to grow in their understanding of these doctrines and grow together. And so thank you for those of you that checked that out. I encourage you, to, if you haven't, to go back and check out that video. It's called Discussing Eschatology. If you're here last week, we kind of tried to work through this difficult text, this often written about, often argued over, rarely agreed upon text that speaks of the 70-week prophecy from Daniel. And though there was lots that people disagree about in that text, what we tried to do last week as we prepare ourselves for Daniel 10 today was to focus on what is really clear in the book of Daniel in those last eight verses of chapter 9. And we saw what was true now for Daniel and what will be true then in the future. And for Daniel, and then we even meditated on our lives, what is true right now, and based on the text, what was true is that, that God hears our prayers, that God responds to our prayers, that God loves us, and for those of us that are Christians, we just have to look at the cross and to know that it was the love of God that sent his son to die in our place, so God loves us, we know that in the gospel, and that God wants us to understand his plan, and who he is, and what it means for us to come to know him. That's true now. And then as we finished the text, looking at verse 24 last week, we saw this picture of this promised redemption that's for the future of all God's people. This beautiful image of, of the new heavens and the new earth, that day in which where every believer will stand in the presence of Jesus and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and he'll make all things new and there'll be no more sorrow, suffering, crying, or pain. And we focused our attention on this promised redemption. And as we looked at the 70-week prophecy of Daniel that nobody agrees upon, one thing we can all agree upon, no matter how you interpret those words, is that the God of the universe is the God of history. And his hand is on the steering wheel of history. And he's moving history forward. And, and it consummates in, his, in the new heavens and the new earth and his, in, the, in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And, and verse 24 gave us this beautiful picture of the, the finishing of rebellion and the, the ending of sin and uh, the atonement of, of uh, sin and, and everlasting righteousness in this beautiful picture. And so we, we finished last week by just kind of reminding ourselves this, this, this simple truth that the text revealed to us. It was that we are called, in the study of Daniel 9, to anchor our hope to the God of history. We're called to anchor our hope to the God of history. His promised redemption will unfold exactly as he decrees. And so now we journey into Daniel chapter 10. The last three chapters of Daniel are one vision so three whole chapters comprise this one vision of Daniel. Chapter 10 is more kind of the, the when and the how the vision came to Daniel. We'll look at that today. Next week, chapter 11 is the content of the vision. And then chapter 12 talks about some of the final vision and how it concludes. Today we're going to look at chapter 10 and we're going to see that the prayer of Daniel that we looked at in chapter 9 was very effective. That prayer was probably prayed somewhere around 538 B.C., 539 B.C., around the first year of King Cyrus. And right about that time, history tells us, and the, gospel, and, the, and the Bible tells us, that Cyrus freed the people of God. He, he, he told the Israelites who were in exile, had been in exile for some 70 years, that they were going to be sent back to their homeland. It was a reason for great celebration. But as, as those people went back, and Ezra records this, uh, this, this journey of the people of God back to 
to Judah and Jerusalem after 70 plus years of being in exile. Not among the travelers was Daniel, though. Daniel stayed behind. He didn't go back. to Some 42,000 plus people went back in that first wave, that first caravan back to Jerusalem. But Daniel, an aged man, probably in his 80s, did not go back. He remained back in Babylon. And then after a couple of years, we come to Daniel chapter 10. After the exilers, after the, those in exile had gone back. So I want us to read, and now this is a long chapter, I want us to read the entirety of chapter 10. Follow along with me in your Bibles, if you will. And I want you to pay attention to two things. Just see if you can notice two things as we read through this text, okay? Make note of them. If you want to mark them with your Bible or your, your, your pen, feel free. Two things. I want you to make note of the mention or the depictions of Daniel's weakness as we read through these 21 verses. And I want you to make note of or, or make, uh, uh, pay attention to the, the mentioning of the way God, through the angel, strengthens Daniel. So notice those two things as we read through Daniel chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Now, verse 1 can be a heading over all of chapters 10, 11, and 12. Verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicatesses, no delicacies, rather, no meat nor wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold of Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like gleam of a burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for, I, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you sent your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was there, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips and opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, 
O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Did you make note of all the mentions of the weakness of Daniel and the strengthening power of God? Did you notice in verse 10 and verse 16 and verse 18, the angel of the Lord touched Daniel and strengthened him in his weakness? Today, as we unpack this text, we're going to see three things. In verse 1 through 9, we're going to see a heavenly messenger. In verse 10 through 14, we're going to see a harrowing message. And in verse 15 through 21, we're going to see a hopeful meaning as we journey through these 21 verses. But ultimately, we're going to settle on a simple argument. A simple argument. What this chapter is revealing to us as the audience today is simply this. God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. God's servant, in this case Daniel, but we can be applied to anyone who is a servant of the Lord, God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, give us ears to hear, hearts to comprehend, minds to, to grasp the truth contained in these 21 verses today, God. I pray as we, as we look across the landscape of history, as we look across the landscape of current events, as we look across the landscape of our own lives, as we see those things which cause discomfort and stress and difficulty, as we look at those things in our lives that make us weary and tired, God, I'm so grateful to know that you're a God who doesn't leave us alone in those places. That you, like this angel in this text, God, you reach down and you touch us and you strengthen us and you comfort us. God, may we see that today as we unpack these words. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, years ago, I think I've told you in the past, I, I, I embarked on what was the all-time greatest backpacking trip. It was a 100-mile point A to point P backpacking trip with my son and my brother-in-law so through some of the most rugged Rocky Mountain wilderness in, Mon in the Montana-Idaho border. It was an amazing trip. I loved every second of it, though it was absolutely brutal to do. Nine nights, ten days, mostly off trail. We had to pack all of our food from day one because there was no place to restock food. It's kind of hard to pack food for ten days and not have a pack that weighs more than you. And so we had to pack all of our food. We had to carry enough food for a week and a half. And I'm talking gross, dehydrated food, nasty, instant oatmeal, ramen noodles, the grossest of the gross. But if I had calories, I packed it because I just needed calories. And so we did this crazy trip. By the end of the trip, our bodies were battered. We had lost, I think I lost like 14 pounds or 16 pounds or something on that trip. We were emaciated. Our joints were swollen and aching. Our feet were trashed, blisters. Our shoes were trashed. And that final day, we had 13 miles to hike to get out to where the trailhead was. And we had no food. And by the time we reached the trailhead, it was, you, I was, we were at the very end of ourselves. In pain, no strength, desperate for food and shower. And we sat there. Our ride was, was yet to arrive to pick us up. And uh, a motley crew, there we were, sitting on this worn-down old bench at the trailhead, way up in the Bitterroot Mountains in western Montana, stinky, beat up, worn out, waiting in utter exhaustion to get out of there, dreaming, dreaming of barbecue. 
And then some stranger walks by with a dog. Some nice guy starts up a conversation with us and really great guy. And we kind of tell him about our trip and he's familiar with the mountains and he thought, well, how would you guys do that? <laughs> because it's super fun uh, to hike. So we conveyed how tore up we were, how hungry we were, how thirsty we were. And then this guy asked this question I'll never forget. He's like, would, would you guys like some snacks and some cold drinks? Over soft sobs of appreciation, we said, yes, sir, we would love cold drinks and snacks. And so he runs to his camper, and he runs back with an armload full of cold drinks and snacks and deposits them on this table in front of us. As we are inhaling the food and the drink, we thank this stranger. And I was thinking of that story in the Gospels where there's that woman who has the expensive jar of perfume, the alabaster jar, and she pours it over the feet of Jesus, and, and the disciples rebuke her for wasting money. And Jesus said, no, what she's done is a beautiful thing. Then he says something to the effect of what she has done here, this act of generosity, will be told of uh, for generations. I told this man, kind sir, this act of generosity will be told about for generations. <laughs> so I'm telling you right now, and, uh, and I think about that day, right? When we were weak, tired, beat up, hungry, thirsty, this man gave us comfort and he strengthened us. Do you know what it's like to be tired, beat up, hungry, and thirsty? Literally or perhaps figuratively? Do you know what it's like to feel alone with a deep, deep need or a deep ache in your soul for companionship and for comfort? Do you know what it's like to, to be so weakened and at the end of yourself that you recognize you do not have it within yourself to move on and you're in desperate need of another to give you strength? Have you been there before? I've been there before. This is the experience for Daniel, and I think if we're just all honest with ourselves, it's the experience for us as well. So the question becomes, how, how can we endure in such situations? Well, I think there's just a, a simple picture in our text today of this. There's much going on in our text, but one of the simplest pictures in our text is this picture of God's servant who does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. Would you look at me real quick at verse 19? This is sort of the centerpiece of the text. It'd be a cool tattoo, but just that's something else for later. Verse 19, listen to what the angel, speaking on behalf of God, says to Daniel at the end of this whole interaction. He says, oh man, greatly loved Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. What an encouraging, encouraging word from the Lord. As I look at that verse, I, I see the, the, the theme of this chapter. Though there's many moving parts, and we'll address those here in a moment, let's not miss the big picture here. God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. And as we read through the text, you saw it, didn't you? Did you notice that over, over, over and over, the language of the chapter speaks of Daniel's weakness? But it also speaks of God's strengthening presence. Over and over, as we work through this chapter, the language speaks of Daniel's great discomfort, but it also speaks of God comforting his servant. Over and over, as we journey, journey through this chapter, it, the language speaks of Daniel's despair, but it also speaks on two occasions of God's great love for this man. Daniel was a man depleted and vulnerable. He had no strength. He was alone, trembling, mute, in pain, the text says. The, his breath had left him. He retained no strength. There was not strength remaining in him. And yet three times we see this angel working on behalf of God, drawing near and touching Daniel and giving him strength. Two times he tells Daniel, fear not because the message that I have for you is from God and it's for your good. Two times the angel reminds Daniel that he is greatly loved. And yet, as we know, 
even as we get into the vision of chapter 11, difficulty is going to come. He's not promised he's not going to have difficulty. Conflict will be a part of life on this side of heaven. However, God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. And so we see three things in the text. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write these down. God, is, God has something to say to Daniel as he labors. And so here's the first thing I want you to write down. We see a heavenly messenger. We see a heavenly messenger, verses 1 through 9. This, this is unfolding in a 530, 536 B.C. or so. If you go back to the year of Daniel's prayer some three years earlier, 539, as I said earlier, God had moved in the heart of King Cyrus, this Persian king, to make an announcement or a proclamation or a decree that the people of of God could go back after this lifetime span of exile in Babylon. If you go to Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, you can read exactly what it was that the king decreed. He decreed for them to go back to Jerusalem. So that means that after like 70 years far from home, living as exiles in Babylon, suddenly the earth shifts. God softens the heart of a pagan king, and a way is made for the exiles to return to their home. And I, and I just imagine, what was the buzz like, you know, in the streets of the cities when the, the decree went out? And, and these exiles who'd been living their whole lives, many of them, most of them had died in exile, the, many had been born in exile, and they began, they'd only heard stories of Jerusalem, stories of Judah, stories of the homeland, and now the word goes out. The Daniel's prayers have been answered. The, pro, the great prophet's prayers have been answered. The, the king has decreed that we can return, and he's going to help us. He's going to give us resources so that we can return back to our homeland. And I'm not sure if you've ever spent any time with people in exile. I have. In, a, in the first church I was a part of for 10 years, we ministered to a people group called the Western Sahara or the Saharawi people. How many of you here have ever heard of the Saharawi refugees? See, nobody knows this story. Nobody knows this story. There's a country on the western, northwestern coast of Africa called Western Sahara. For hundreds of years, they were a colonized people group. In 1976, they were colonized by Spain at the time. The Western Sahara people negotiated independence from Spain for their own sovereignty. About the time those conversations were happening, Above board, behind closed doors, both Morocco and Mauritania were, were making plans for a peaceful invasion. And in October of 20, 1976, they called it the, the, the Green March, I think is what they called it. Uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians and people from Mauritania to the south and Morocco to the north marched in and began to occupy Western Sahara. Well, they declared war. And a 16-year war broke out between Western Sahara and mostly Morocco, because eventually Mauritania pulled out. And then in 1991, the UN came in and they established a peace accord and they, they, they froze the lines where they were. And there's this giant berm built out in the Sahara Desert where the Western Sahara uh, people had been pushed back uh, against the Moroccans. But at the beginning of the war in 1976, about 200,000 men, women, and children fled out into Western Algeria into the Sahara Desert and set up four refugee camps. Somehow, someway, God allowed my church that I was a part of some 20 years ago to be a part of what he was doing in one of these camps. The, the Sahrawi people are a 100% unreached people group. They speak a dialect of, of Arabic. But we had an opportunity to go and build schools and be a part of what God was doing there. They knew we were Christians, but we had to tread lightly. This is also in North Africa right after 9-11. It was a tense time. But as I would go and I would spend, I, I, I did three, diff- three different long trips there. And as I would sit in the homes of these people, drink tea with these people, hear their stories, I'd listen to the old folks talk about the homeland, talk about the, the, the ocean, talk about the forests, talk about the mountains, talk about the phosphate farms, talk about the fishing. And their eyes would just gloss over as they talked about going back. I was, I was there when they were at about year 35 to 40 of being exiled in these refugee camps. 
And I just remember hearing these people talk. And, and I was in these families where there's moms and, and the dads usually weren't a part of these conversations. But the moms who remember the homeland and then all their children who were born in exile. And I would sit there and talk with these people. And the kids, I could just, I could hear the ache in the heart of the adults, the grown-ups. And I could see sort of the bewilderment in the eyes of the young people. And they have this idealized vision of what it means to go back. And so when I read this text, and I imagine after 70 years of exile, that suddenly the king makes a decree, you can go back. It's miraculous. And most of those who decided to go back, who God stirred in their heart to go back, were very likely people who had never been there in the first place. Only heard it through the stories of their parents and grandparents. It was a huge moment for the people of God. Ezra 2 tells us that that over 42,000 who God had stirred in their hearts decided to go back. Of those 42,000 plus, there was 200 singers, and a whole bunch of livestock, camels, mules, and horses. And then I just think of that day. They, they, they gathered, they prepared, they planned. There had to be a day when the caravan just left. And I don't even know how that unfolded. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I imagine an aged Daniel, some 80, 85-year-old man, gathering out there, looking in the faces of these young people. I imagine he was thinking in his mind, boy, this is the reverse of what I did 70 years ago. As a teen boy coming this way, I'm watching these young faces go back. And I imagine he watched as, as this caravan of, of, what would it be, undone exiles head back to the homeland. I imagine him watching as the dust clouds rose up into the sky as the sun set. I imagine he stood there watching as the, the singers could no longer be heard. But he didn't go. Why didn't he go? Was he too old to go? Maybe. I, I kind of think that, that perhaps he had some work to do in Babylon still. Daniel was a faithful man, and my guess is that God didn't give him a release to go. And so he watched as they left, and he waits for a word to hear how things are going in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that it took about seven months. After about seven months, after the people of God had gathered enough resources, they were able to to turn their attention to the work they went there to do to begin rebuilding the city. Zerubbabel gathered the people of God, and then they, they built and dedicated an altar to Jerusalem. And no doubt Daniel got to hear word of that, and no doubt that was so exciting for the exile still back in exile that God was moving, building was happening, the plans were unfolding. But then after a second year and a third year, Daniel would begin receiving reports that the work had stalled, and that opposition was great, and that... The plans, the grand plans, the hopeful plans that were concocted in the moments after Cyrus's decree had now fallen on ice and the people were again vulnerable and oppressed, facing great opposition. The great hope had long since waned. Plans were frustrated. Times were troubled and work had ceased. I'm thinking about what Gabriel said in chapter 9, verse 25, that He says the temple will be rebuilt in a troubled time. And that's coming true for the people of God in this moment. And so now in our text, as we pick up here in verse 10, three years into project return and rebuild Jerusalem have unfolded. And then we see Daniel mourning. He's wondering what's going on. He's trying to understand the timing of the Lord. He's like, Lord, I've served you my whole life. And this was like the, the hope all along that our people would go back and now their plans are frustrated, work has stopped, they're facing great opposition. When will it cease, Lord? When will victory finally come? His entire life he'd been in exile. And now he's watching his back home, things aren't going so well. And from his perspective, it looks hopeless. I like what the ESV Study Bible says. As we see Daniel fasting, In the beginning of our chapter here, the ESV says, As a sign of identification with the trials of his brothers and sisters in Judah, Daniel was in mourning. 
adopting and deliberately a deliberately ascetic lifestyle for three weeks. However, as we open our text, we read that this moment is embedded in history. It tells us the month, the date, the time. So this happened. We're reminded, even as Daniel is giving us time markers in the beginning of this chapter, that God's hands are on the steering wheels of history. And as Daniel is praying to God, God in his great mercy reveals a word to Daniel. Look at verses 4 and 5. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold... God is responding to Daniel's contrite posture, fasting and very likely praying. Daniel had been hearing reports from the mouths of men, and travelers were no doubt passing word on to Daniel that Project Return and Rebuild Jerusalem was not going well. It's struggling, but here an angel of the Lord comes to Daniel and reveals a better word. And as we look at this vision, it seems like there's this angelic being. There is this angelic being that's coming to Daniel. It seems as if it might be God himself. Did you, did you see the descriptions in verses 5 and 6? Daniel, he looks, lifts his eyes and behold, he sees a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. What an, what an impressive and fear-inducing sight to see this. Come. The dudes that were with him, they either ran and hid. I just think they're like little kids that bury their head in the corner of the couch and don't want to see the boogeyman coming because no one with him saw it. But Daniel saw it. And though this heavenly being looks like God, I think upon further study, it's clear that this is a messenger of God who's reflecting the glory of God. The reason I say that is because later on in the chapter we read where the prince of Persia was prevailing over this angel. And if this was a theophany, if this was, a, if this was God himself, he would not have been prevailed over by the angel of Persia. So this seems to me clearly to be an angel who's appearing to Daniel. And Daniel is so overwhelmed by the appearance, he's left with no strength. And I think about the cost of being a prophet... A cost, the cost of, of putting oneself in this position to speak on behalf of God throughout the second half of the book of Daniel. In the first half of the book of Daniel, we just see this guy constantly persecuted in the first half. And in the second half of Daniel, we just see him sick and weary and on his face and trembling. And it just the weight and the burden of being a herald or being a, a prophet of God is overwhelming. And it's not just unique to Daniel. We look at other prophets in the Bible, and they have similar experiences. If you look at Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, once he has a similar visitation, he he finishes by saying, Woe is me. I'm lost and I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel, similarly, Ezekiel chapter 1 says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face as I heard the the voice of the one speaking. The Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, he In chapter 1, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a burdensome calling to be someone who speaks on behalf of the living God. Now listen, I'm no prophet. Not even close. But if I can just be honest, this is, I don't take this lightly. I think anybody that stands in a place of speaking forth the words of God shouldn't take it lightly. There's a heavy burden and a heavy responsibility that comes with speaking forth the words of God. And though though I I have not experienced anything like what these men have experienced, as I talk to my friends 
the men and women who I know who have faithfully stood in the place of teaching or proclaiming God's word, it is a burden. So the first thing we see is a heavenly messenger. So what kind of message has this heavenly messenger come to deliver? Well, we see that it is a harrowing message. So we see the messenger, now we, see the, we hear what the message is, and it is a harrowing message. That word harrowing simply means extremely disturbing or distressing. It's a grievous message. This is a difficult message for, for Daniel to hear. As we've said at the beginning of chapter 7, apocalyptic literature, or apocalypse, as we've been saying, that word literally means reveal. And as we get into this text, as we get into this literature, this is just God revealing spiritual realities behind earthly things. And so we get to see another world, we get to see another time, and as chapter 10 unfolds, and as the angel begins to peel back the veil, and as we're going to see, both in this chapter and the next, as Daniel gets to peer into that unseen world, he sees angels at war, messengers at war concerning the sons of men. And especially when we hone in on verse 13, we see these, these, these unique spiritual realities behind earthly events. Look at verse 13 with me. Did you make, make note of the strangeness of this verse when we read through it initially? Beginning in verse, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now the word prince here in this chapter is used to refer to angelic beings. Michael is called the chief prince. We read about Michael and Jude, and he's called an archangel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia here is an evil angel associated somehow with the Persian Empire. It's interesting, this angel is associated with a geographical empire. And this dark principality is opposing God and his purposes. There's a war that's unfolding. The prince of, of Persia in verse 13 evidently is assigned over Persia by Satan. Or some have even speculated that this prince of Persia is actually even Satan himself. Ultimately, we don't know. However, it's evil. Whether it's an angel or Satan, it's a demon. And it's engaging in a spiritual war with the angels of God. And Daniel's beginning to hear about this as he interacts with this angel. So fearsome is the opposition of these evil forces in opposition to God's purposes that we read that somehow this angel of Persia prevailed over the angel of the Lord for 21 days. Daniel began to pray... The word went out, the angel wanted to come and was unable to do so because of the warfare between Daniel, Dan, this angel and, and the prince of Persia. What a, what a picture. This is a picture of war. And if it wouldn't been, have been for the intervention of Michael, the chief prince, or the archangel Michael, who knows how long this other angel would have been held up in responding to Daniel's prayer. But, but at the end of the day, like this is, I know it's bizarre, but, but pictured here is a war in the heavens. This is a war unfolding in the heavens. Fallen angels and principalities that stand behind the kingdoms of the world are at war with the angels of the Lord that stand behind the kingdom of God. David Helm in his commentary puts it this way. He says, in this verse, verse 13, a veil is being peeled back on an unseen universe. There's not merely an angelic host who is doing the bidding of God, but there are others too, fallen ones who work to oppose God with great effort. So what can we take? What, what is true? What are some realities that we see in this passage that we need to pay attention to? I think there's four things that, that, that Stephen Miller, a, a theologian, helped me to see. If you want to write these down, it's not on the notes, but if you want to write them down, it's interesting. What are three things or four things we can know to be true about what unfolds in these verses? 
Well, one, angels are real. We can know that angels are real. And angels are created beings. People don't become angels when they die. Angels are created beings that are separate from humans, and they're real. Two, there are good and evil angels. The New Testament calls evil angels demons, fallen angels who oppose the plan and the purposes of God. Three, angels can influence the affairs of human beings, good and bad. Four, there is an invisible spiritual warfare being waged right now that involves angels and even people. Do you hear those four things that we see unfolding in our passage this morning? Angels are real. There are good and evil angels. Angels can influence the affairs of human beings. And there is an invisible spiritual warfare being waged that involves angels and people. Miller goes on to say, particularly this passage teaches that angels inspire human governments and their leaders. He says, in Daniel's day, Persia ruled the earth. Satan would naturally have attempted to influence the decisions made by the Persian government because policies made there would affect the entire world. Now listen, I don't think I need to convince you today that there are some evil forces that are at work in our world globally and locally. Satan continues his attempts to influence and steer earthly powers. I think we probably would agree upon that. And it would stand to reason that the strategy is the same today as it was then is we see this prince of Persia trying to influence this powerful entity, this country, it would stand to reason that today if there are dark forces, evil forces at work, they are seeking seeking to influence nations and powers with the most influence. Now I get it, man. This is really supernatural stuff. I think about it often. There is an invisible spiritual warfare being waged today. Right now, I think a couple months ago, we just kind of speculated on a Sunday morning, like, what would happen if, like Daniel, when God peels back the veil and he's able to see this revelation of the spiritual realities behind earthly events, like, what would happen if God would allow us to see that? I think, like Daniel, we would fall on our face. God's armies are engaged in a grand battle behind the scenes. They're engaged in a spiritual war. And the apostles in the New Testament, New Testament writers affirm this. The apostle Paul talks about it. I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of these verses. The apostle Paul in First, or I think Second Corinthians 10, he says, for, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against the flesh. He goes on in Ephesians 6, this very famous passage in Ephesians 6. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then this is the whole passage that speaks about putting on the armor of God. Peter talks about how, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. James says in chapter 4, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, the spiritual battle is real. It is a real battle, and Satan is real, and he's at work. The Bible describes Satan as the god of this age. He's the adversary, the tempter, the ruler of demons, the evil one, the roaring lion. He's the accuser. And no doubt today, as we gather in here, the enemy is waging war. He's seeking to sway nations and authorities and to, 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 to put his hands on the controls of those with the greatest amount of influence. And no doubt today, the enemy has his, and his minions are at war on a smaller level against the people of God. The people in this room, even. From the very first humans back in the Garden of Eden, Satan's tactic has been the same. 
He seeks to entice people to, 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 to look away, to look to anything other than God, to believe the lie that, there is, that God's holding out on us. And he's, he's keeping something from us. And so the same lie that he told Adam and Eve was, did God really say that? Put doubt in their mind about the power, the authority, the goodness of God, and they looked elsewhere and sin entered the world and so did death. And the same temptation enters our world, enters the world of humans today, tempted all the time. He, he seeks to entice you and me and the people of this earth to look to anything or anyone other than God for our joy, for our significance, for our identity, for our belonging, for our hope, for our salvation, and people do it all the time. I appreciate what Timothy Keller said. I listened to a, a lecture he gave this week, and he said, when you look at some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that is idolatry. He said, when you look at some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that is idolatry. And it is so easy to be enticed and deceived into turning to these different forms of idol worship. Now, we don't necessarily build little statues, though you may. The idols of today are more what Keller calls idols of the soul. They live within us. As warfare is being waged, Keller goes on to say, an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a life if you lose it. Did you hear that? I think that's a really insightful way for you and I to consider where we are this morning. I agree with Keller. He says, an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a life if you lose it. When you take a finite thing and make it an absolute, when you take a created thing and pretend it has powers of creation, when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Keller points out that this is why pagans are polytheists. Why there are so many gods in pagan cultures. Because anything can be a god. We can make anything a god. Anything can be an idol in our lives. Part of me wanted to try to walk through all the ways that we could identify the idols of today in southern Oregon 2024. I don't think I'm smart enough to do that. But I know some idols. Mostly idols of the soul. Idol of self-sufficiency. Fierce independence. I don't need anybody. The idol of career, of financial achievement, the idol of critical acclaim. And as a dad of three kids and the father of one grandson, the idol of family and children, the idol of social standing, the idol of what we bring to the table, our competency, our skills, our, our resume. The idol of physical beauty. The idol of a relationship or the dream of a relationship. The idol of a clean moral record. Hey, look how good I am, God. The idol of a political ideology, a political affiliation, or a political candidate. The idol of success. I could probably go on, but you get the idea. You see, when God is your all in all, I mean, truly, when you have come to a place like John the Baptist who says, oh, that is God. He must increase, I must decrease. When you get to the point where he is the all in all in your life, he sits on the throne of your heart, you recognize he is the one, the only, and he is absolutely on the throne of your life. 
you can go through losses, devastating, devastating losses that, that break your heart and make you sad, but it doesn't end you because it's not your God. However, when someone elevates something other than God to an ultimate thing and they then lose that thing, they seek to end their life, literally or, or, or figuratively. And Keller goes on to say that's how you know it's an idol, that you're so invested in this thing that if it goes south, you either don't want to live or you actually take your own life. So that shows you, if that's the case in your life, that you may be in the arms of an idol. So I know much could be said today. And we're, we're, we're taking some liberties here on this one verse in verse 13. I recognize that, but, but I want us to think about this. How can, you, how can we identify our idols? I suppose there's greater counsel than what I'm about to share, but, but, but I, think, I think there's one way to identify the idols in your life. Here, here's how. I think when you and I begin to exclusively focus our hope on Jesus Christ and on the fullness of the gospel... I mean, the gospel is this incredible story that from eternity past, God has had a plan to redeem humankind. And he gave us pictures and hints of that throughout the Old Testament, throughout human history, throughout salvation history. And then we see in the New Testament, God broke into history in his son, Jesus, fully God and fully man. And he, came, he broke into history so that, that he could take your sin and my sin upon himself. Jesus was fully God in that he never sinned as the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. Jesus bore our sin and he went to the cross and he died the death that you and I deserve to die. The wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Jesus, satisfying the justice of God. And then Jesus was buried in a grave and three days later he rose to life. Forever overcoming sin, forever defeating death. And then Jesus, before his disciples, after seeing, being seen by 500 witnesses, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father today, interceding on our behalf, reigning right now in glory. And one day he's coming back. And one day he will bring into existence the kingdom consummated. He's going to renew all things. Perfect redemption. That picture we've been reading the last couple of weeks of Revelation 21, all things new, no more death, dying, sorrow, pain, every tear wiped. That's the promise. That's the fullness of the gospel. And when we begin to, to fix our eyes on this, this promised plan of God, this, this eternal plan of redemption, we, and, and Jesus being the centerpiece of that, the cross being the centerpiece of that, and when our eyes are fixed on that, the things of the world grow strangely dim. Those idols that once had so much of our attention begin to fade in the distance. So you want to know how to see if you're struggling with some idol worship. Fix your eyes on Jesus and look and see what turns dim. You know the old, the old adage how, how bank tellers tell a counterfeit is they handle a real, the real bill. And when they touch a real dollar bill, when they grab a counterfeit, they're like, oh, yuck, that's a counterfeit. I don't want it. That's the idea here. There's this author who I've been reading kind of in my devotions. He wrote a little book called A Gospel Primer. I've been sharing it with a few people. I really appreciate this little book. It's been, been helpful for me in the last couple of weeks and it's kind of my personal worship. He has a little devotion here on my daily protection. The idea of what is the nowism, what is the daily way we can utilize the gospel to protect ourselves from drifting to the left or to the right. Listen to what he has to say. He says, as, I long, as long as I am inside the gospel, he says, I experience all the protection I need from the powers of evil that rage against me. It is for this reason that the Bible tells me to take up and put on the whole armor of God. And the pieces of the armor 
it tells me to put on are all merely synonyms for the gospel. Translated literally from the Greek, they are the salvation, the justification, truth, the gospel of peace, the faith, and the word of God. What are all these expressions but various ways of describing the gospel? Therefore, he says, if I wish to stand victorious in Jesus, I must do as the songwriter suggests and put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. He goes on to finish with this. He says, that God would tell me to take up and put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that I do not automatically come into each day protected by the gospel. In fact, these commands imply that I am vulnerable to defeat and injury unless I seize upon the gospel and arm myself with it from head to toe. And what better way is there to do this than to preach the gospel to myself and make it the obsession of my heart throughout each day? Oh, I love the little meditations in this book. So encouraging. So we see a heavenly messenger, a harrowing message, and finally we get to this last little bit, a hopeful meaning. This heavenly messenger brings a harrowing message, and this harrowing message that he brings has a hopeful meaning. What is going on for Daniel, we ask, and what is the implication for us as we look at these last few verses? Daniel's being told that God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. In other words, as God peels back the veil, and as Daniel sees the future, he is comforted and strengthened by God, even though he sees difficult things in the future. Why? Well, the angel speaks to him in verse 19, this amazing promise. This is God speaking to Daniel through the angel. O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And so listen, here we are today, the, the so what aspect of the sermon. So what's this mean for me? Here's the deal. As we look out on the world, we all know that the world's not as it should be. I've been talking to my friends who are baby boomers who've seen such radical transition from the 40s, 50s, and 60s to today. We all know, all of us, that the world is not as it should be. My kids have grown up in a generation of war. Their generation was a 9-11 generation. So we all know it's not as it should be. As we look out at the world, we are in a world of tumult. And as we look out and we look at the headlines and we see the brokenness of our world, the, the moral corruption, the moral decay, we wonder, gosh, what lies ahead for us? What lies ahead for our days? And like Daniel, as servants of God, we can know that the great conflict between now and then will not come to us without God's strength, without God's comfort, without God's presence. The gospel preaches that to us. God has preserved for us his word. He's revealed himself to us in his son. And because of that, we can have comfort. His comfort is attending to his people. And he reminds his people you and me, that we are greatly loved, that we're not to fear, that we can be established in peace, that we can be strong and courageous. As we look at the last verse of the, the chapter, the angel mentions the book of truth. What, what is the ultimate source of our comfort? Well, it's the ultimate victory and it's the ultimate salvation that God has planned for his people. This book of truth that the angel mentions in verse twenty. One is God's sovereign plan for the world. God has his hand on the steering wheel of history. We can bank on it. One theologian puts it this way. He says, the book of truth is the book in which God has designated beforehand, according to truth, the history of the world as it shall certainly be unfolded. So this, and as you go at the end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 12, there's this promise of suffering, but this 
also this promise of, of, of life. If you look at the, just kind of skip ahead, what's, what's, the, what's the source of this? Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we read that there shall be a time of trouble such as never been and since there was a nation till that time. There's, there's going to be trouble, the angel says, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be written, found written in the book or the book of life. So listen, church. His comfort is attending to you. And as he reminds you today that you are greatly loved, you you are to not fear. You are to, to recognize that God has established you in peace. You are to be strong and courageous. God's servant does not encounter conflict outside of God's comfort. May you and my I and may we as the people of God, no matter the tumult, recognize that God has his hand on the steering wheel. He's with us in the conflict and he comforts us and strengthens us in the middle of it. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of gathering us this morning in this place. God, thank you for this. God, these 21 verses, though as difficult and supernatural and fear-inducing as some of these verses may be, God, there's also a very simple message in it for us. God, I think about you. You are the sovereign God of the universe, the Alpha, the Omega. God, you are are sovereign over all things. You are all-powerful, all-knowing. You're all-present. And yet, at the same time, you you condescend to comfort us. You, you, You have made yourself known to us. You have entered human history, and God, you have forever dealt with our sin that separates us from you and you've made a way for us to be known by you that we can be men and women who are greatly loved forgiven, redeemed, saved so God I pray for the folks here today God you know each one of our stories you do God you know those of us that are in a season right now of plenty where the the sunshine of life is shining on our face and we're in a, a wonderful time of just celebrating your goodness. God, just remind us that you're with us and may we continue to worship and praise you for your blessings on this day. God, I know for sure there are men and women here today that are in a season of great tumult, a season of great discomfort. They are weary, they're tired, they're hungry, they're aching. Oh God, by your spirit right now in these moments, God, by your spirit, would you just draw near to these men and women? God, would you whisper in their ear right now, oh, greatly, oh, oh man, oh, oh, woman, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. So grateful, God, that you draw near to us and you strengthen us in our most desperate hour. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.